this Monday nights. 80. For a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks. 3. There was a clear winner in this historic war. Weeks. This is the story of that campaign. 83 weeks. 20 years later, the time has come. The whole truth. For the whole truth. This is 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. Great to be back home after a really fun weekend with you in Baltimore and Nashville. It's been great. Dude, I uh, I felt like Ric Flair in 86 this weekend. It was Huntsville to Charlotte, Charlotte to Baltimore, Baltimore to Nashville, Nashville to Atlanta, Atlanta to Huntsville. So... It's been an interesting couple of days, and we are excited to be here with you today. Eric's popping open a coal one there, and we are going to give you exactly what you want. How can I be so confident? Well, because last week I posted on Twitter, if you could ask Eric Bischoff any one question, what would it be? And Eric, we got over 600 responses. How about that? 600? Yeah, 600 replies. Well, we're going to be here for a while, aren't we? We are, (laughs) you know, we're not going to get to all 600, but we're going to knock a hole in them. We're going to try to pick out some of the more interesting ones. I'm sure a lot of these questions were duplicates, uh, but we're going to try to bring you something fun and interesting here. Let's get to the questions, man. And let's start right with the one that got everybody stirred up last week from Mr. Vince Russo. He actually responded to this. If you could ask Eric Bischoff, any one question, what would it be? And he says, Why won't you have a face-to-face discussion with Vince Russo? Hyperbole unaccepted. I mean, was that part of his question? The hyperbole unaccepted? Yeah. Um, No hyperbole. Uh, He's a delusional, lying um, piece of shit. And, you know, I I let the guy burn me twice. I let him burn me once um, in 1996. Or excuse me, in uh, when was the bash at the beach? The big debacle was it ninety nine? Two thousand. Yeah, two thousand. I'm sorry, it's been a tough day. <laughs> um, I let him burn me once there, and I let him burn me again, or attempt to burn me when we were both in TNA. You know, the first time, you know, I, I go, I have this policy where you know, screw me once, shame on me. Screw me, or screw me once, shame on you. Screw me twice, shame on me. So. He screwed me twice, and I, you know, I wanted to trust him. I wanted to, to have a good relationship with him, but there will not be a third time. I, I guarantee you. So he, in my book, you know, he's as good as dead, um, in terms of you know any possible relationship in the future with him, and I, I just don't debate dead guys or face dead people face to face. So, there you go. Well, somebody whose wrestling career is not dead is David Arquette. And he responded to this tweet and he says, why'd you do it? Why? Why'd I do what? Why'd you put the belt on David Arquette? Oh, well, he knows why I was part of his documentary. We talked a lot about that. You know, first of all, that was a Vince Russo idea. And I went along with it. You know, I went along with it in part because um, we were promoting a Time Warner feature film called Ready to Rumble that had a number of fairly big stars at the time. Oliver Platt was uh, a pretty big player as an actor. Uh, Scott Kahn was was up and coming. Uh, and it was a big budget uh, feature for, for WCW. It was a big opportunity. So it was a stunt. You know, putting the belt on David Arquette is one thing. Um, having him beat me for it 
you know, it was nothing more than a stunt. It's not like he beat Hulk Hogan or Ric Flair or, you know, <laughs> Scott Hall or Kevin Nash. You know, he beat me. So, you know, I know everybody's made a big deal out of it and it it gets a lot of heat. And, and from, from a wrestling fan's perspective, I understand that. Um, but in the big scheme of things, it was a stunt to promote a movie. And there was business decision. There was a business reason behind it, but he knows that. Sure. Uh, Dave Silva wants to know what was the greatest perk of being a member of the NWO? Um, biggest perk of being a member of the NWO. You probably didn't have to pay for admission to strip clubs and stuff like that. Right. I mean, you could just do sweet them and you're right in. Uh, yeah, it depends who you go in with, you know, people didn't always recognize me when I was by myself, but if I, obviously if I went in with Hulk Hogan or Scott Hall or Kevin Nash, that was a little bit of a different story. So, you know, that, you know, uh, yeah, that didn't really happen too often. I would say free, free beers at the hotel bar afterward would probably be, <laughs> probably be as, as far as it really went. Uh, Dan wants to know when you're sitting in Ted Turner's office and he asks what he can do to make WCW huge. And you say prime time. Was that really just blurted out or were you prepared to say that? And the follow-up question here is, is that the single greatest thing you've ever said in your professional life? Uh, to the first part, no, it was completely blurted out. I had, there was no way in, in, in my imagination, I could have anticipated that number one, Ted would have asked that question. And because he did ask that question and because I was totally unprepared for it, and I know this is hard for people to to believe, I guess, or to relate to maybe is a better way of saying it. But if you go back in during that period of time and if you could be me, you know, in early summer 1995, um, things were just beginning to turn around for WCW, the biggest goal anybody in our company in WCW had was to make $1 a profit. That was my goal. That was my mantra. That's what I beat over, you know, people over the head with every single day. It's why I made them go into their desks and count their pens and pencils and come back and tell me uh, you know, how many pens and pencils they had. Because I wanted people to get used to thinking about what resources they had and how best to manage them. All of that was really so that we could hopefully at some point make $1 in profit, right? So I we had gotten to the point where on paper, if – I could close a deal that was sitting on, it was an offer that was sitting on my desk from star TV in China. Um, if, if I could sign that deal and and completely execute it, that would have meant approximately a million or a million and a half dollars a year in revenue to WCW, which would have put us over the top. We would have made more than that $1 profit. Right. But signing that deal meant that I was going into business with Rupert Murdoch because Rupert Murdoch owned um, the Star Network in China. And at that time, now 1995, Rupert Murdoch is beginning to launch the Fox News Network, right? You know, Ted was CNN. He was number one. He was the only cable. I think he was the only uh, international 24-hour, you know, worldwide news network. Well, Rupert Murdoch was about to go head-to-head with him. So me going into business on my own uh, with with a Rupert Murdoch owned company was like a it was a career killer. 
had I done it without asking permission. So I spent all my time trying to convince Ted that doing this deal um, was the right thing to do. That's what I was prepped for. The last thing in the world I expected was for Ted Turner to say, well, what's it going to take to be competitive? So I, I, you know, I, I literally, I hesitated for a second because I knew there was no way in the world I'm going to bullshit Ted Turner. I mean, guys has, he had a pretty, pretty keen bullshit meter. So I, you know, in my head, I, you know, what do I say? What do I say? What do I say? I hesitated. And I, I said, just tell him the truth. And I said, Ted, you know, we've got WCW at 6.05 on Saturday night on the East Coast at 3.05 on Saturday on the West Coast. There's no way, given, you know, the disparity in between primetime, you know, Monday night on the USA Network and being <laughs> between 3 and 6 on a Saturday afternoon, there's no way we're going to be competitive. And and that's when and because that was the truth. That was the only thing I could say that wasn't some kind of an excuse or bullshit. It was just a fact. And when Ted said, Well, okay, Scott, meaning Scott Sassa, give her two hours prime time every Monday night against Monday Night Raw. I that was the last thing in the world I ever expected to happen, honestly. I didn't I didn't even fantasize about it in my wildest dreams. And in terms of it being the, the best thing I've ever said, I think that that's probably true when it comes to business. Um, that might be you know, the simplest, most effective, most powerful response I've ever had to a question because look what look at what happened as a result. Now, you and I both know, Conrad, after reading Guy Evans' book, uh, Nitro, The Incredible Rise, Inevitable Fall of Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling, we both learned in reading that book that there had been some conversations between Ted and Brad Siegel and others about doing just this. It's just that I wasn't aware of it. So I think when Ted asked the question and I gave him the answer that he probably already figured out, that's what probably gave him the confidence in me or maybe just whatever, the confidence to go ahead and move forward. Uh, and do it, but it was it was a phenomenal meeting. It's you know what the only face to face meeting I've ever ever really had with Ted. All right, let's do a fun question here. Let's go to David Fuller. He wants to know if you can justify Virgil's contract. Uh yeah. First of all, he wasn't that expensive. Number one, number two, he was a recognizable character. He had name value. He was you know, he was recognized from all the time that he spent in WWE or WWF at the time. Uh, he was a talented guy. Um, he, he he wasn't getting you know high seven figures or even mid or excuse me six figures. He was making, or even mid. Yeah, he's making one hundred nine thousand in ninety seven, one twelve in ninety eight, one fifty four in ninety nine. Okay, I mean, look, I, you know, I know people sitting at home that are you know working at FedEx or, or, you know, most, most normal jobs, non-entertainment type jobs hear those numbers go, Holy cow, that's a ton of money. But keep in mind, you know, they're independent contractors, which means they're taxed at about 38% on that. They have to pay a lot of their own expenses on the road, uh, especially a guy like, like Virgil did. Um, so that as much as $138,000 sounds like a lot of money. And it is until you start deducting, taxes and expenses, road expenses out of that. It's really, it really wasn't that much money for a guy who had spent as much time as, as Virgil had on WWF television. Yeah. I can't argue that. 
uh you know now that i see how much you made okay i get it um <laughs> we get lots of interesting questions about your uh your headshots uh robert wants to know if mabel was supposed to be the third man and the british bulldog was supposed to be the fourth man play along eric who would have been the fifth man hmm. i think doink would have been mabel. a strong member huh doink he would have been a strong member right no, 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 no. I wouldn't have gone with Doink. I wouldn't have gone with Doink. Tatanka? God, no. Tatanka would have been too colorful in that whole black and white vibe mm. thing. Oh, a you know? knuckleball shorts. Who the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you go? I'm here. I'm hoping you got a third answer. Uh, a man oh. for me. Okay. No, I thought you fell out of your chair. You were laughing so hard. I thought you <laughs> fell down. Uh, let's see. I, you know, I would have gone with a Brooklyn brawler. Yeah, that's Abe Knuckleball Schwartz, just in paint. Oh, it in, is. In face okay. paint. Yeah, I mean, listen, he's that's the great thing about old brawler. I mean, he could do any character you wanted. You need him to be kimchi? Done. You know what I mean? Just whatever you're looking for. Yeah, no, I would. Yeah, Brooklyn brawler would have been great. Uh, here's a fun question. This is from the off-white Hispanic. That's a heck of a Twitter handle. Uh, do you think a future WCW sized competitor is possible in today's WWE dominated world? Absolutely not. It, 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 it will never happen again. It will happen about the, it will happen when somebody else becomes the first man on the moon. It's, it's just not possible anymore. The times have changed so much. Television has changed so much and people have to realize WWE is now a fourth generation family owned company. It's been around, you know, I don't know the complete history of it. I'm guessing since the forties or, 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 or the fifties, um, the WWE has been around as an entity and as a form of entertainment and professional wrestling for four generations to, to think that a startup is going to come along and compete with WWE is just sheer sub stupid fantasy. Um, it's never going to happen. That doesn't mean that someone can't come along and be successful because you don't have to be competitive in today's environment with the WWE in order to still be successful. But in terms of, you know, competing with them in any re measurable way, absolutely not. It'll never happen. Here's a fun question. And, um, you know, we get various, versions of this all the time this is from joey Ware. eric can you sell me this broom you know i should have a really good snappy comeback for that because <laughs> I, I really should who was it in wwe a couple of weeks ago they dug up an audition tape who's the who's the new um commentator on monday night raw renee young Renee Young. Renee Young had an audition about two or three years ago, and she was asked to do something very similar. Yeah. And she she actually did a great job. And I guess, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would probably come much more become much more animated. I'd grab the broom. I talk about the width of the broom, the durability of the bristles in this broom are unlike anything you can find anywhere for any price. This broom doesn't just sweep the floor. This broom owns the floor. I would have gotten much more animated and colorful and dramatic in my presentation. 
Um, and Renee did a great job, actually. Go back and look for that. It's pretty interesting. So I wasn't the only one that had to sell an inanimate object. Uh, Paul wants to know, when was the last time Eric had any contact with Ted Turner? It was so, gosh, time flies so fast. I lose track of it, really. Um, it probably would have been around 2005, I believe. I was working on a project for uh, Fox Network, actually, um, that it was a NASCAR project. And I was dealing with Jeff Gordon, was going to be one of our characters. It was a reality show, essentially, um, in the world of NASCAR. And Jeff Gordon was going to be our kind of lead character in that. Uh, or our lead personality. So I was negotiating with uh, Jeff's dad, his stepfather, actually. And we're, you know, talking through the business. We had made a lot of progress. And um, Jeff's dad says, well, you know, I've heard a lot of great things about you. And, you know, I really like what you said, what you have to say. And I love your idea. But how do I know, you know, you know anything about television? You know, do you have any references, he said. And I thought, well, I'm just going to, take this as far as I can take it and hope for the best. I said, well, I, you know, might be able to give Ted Turner a call and see if he'd talk to you, Would that be good enough. I mean, it was a hail Mary. Cause I didn't know if I could get Ted on the phone or not. And, um, he said, Oh man, that'd be great. I knew if I could get Ted, because I mean, of the way he reacted to it, uh, I knew if I could get, you know, Ted to give him a shout, then I was gold. So I, I said, let me work on that. You know, I'll see if I can set up that phone call for you. So my partner and I walked out of, of his office in Charlotte out of Jeff Gordon's office and I got out to the car and I said, Oh shit, I don't know if I can get Ted to do this or not. And I got on the phone and I called Bill Shaw and Bill was re really, he was vice president of human resources. He had retired by that point, but he was still tight with Ted and was still working closely with Ted Turner on his properties in Montana in New Mexico. So I called Bill Shaw who I was very close to and said, Bill, <laughs> I need a favor from Ted. He goes, let me connect you. And I got, yeah, I, I let Ted know what I needed. And it was a very short phone call, very friendly. He was happy to hear from me. And about 20 minutes later, you know, he, he made the phone call and I was good as gold. Amazing. That was the last time. Uh, Mike wants to know why is Eric so down on Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake? See my earlier comments about Vince Russo. I hate repeating myself on a show like this, but you know, look, I, I'm really funny about certain things, you know, and we all make mistakes. We all do stupid shit. I'm the king of it. I really am. I'm, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not one of those guys that live in a glass house and throw rocks and things like that. But, um, there's certain things that once a person crosses over a line with me, whether it's trust or loyalty or, or being honest, um, you know, some of it I can kind of look the other way if it's minor kind of stuff, but some of it I think is a real indication of someone's true character. And I just distance myself from people like that. And, you know, Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake is one of those people. I know he's, you know, he's friends again with Hulk. And I'm really glad those guys have known each other for 40 years. And, you know, Hulk's a much bigger person than I am when it comes to forgiving people. He's much more forgiving than I am. I try. My wife is very forgiving. She, she works on me to try to learn how to become more forgiving, but I'm not, you know, in, in, in certain certain respects, some things I can forgive very easily, 
But there's just a couple things that, you know, once you check that box, then you can't uncheck them with me. Uh, Michael wants to know what's your biggest regret during your time in the wrestling business. If you could go back and change one thing, what would it be? Looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea. I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say paint your life transforms your photos into a one of a kind, beautiful hand painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame and you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word weeks to 87204. That's weeks to 87204. Text weeks to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Uh, probably the whole situation that, you know, I had to deal with, with Ric Flair and the way I handled it. I would have done that differently. You know, I, I can justify it in some respects, um, from a business, purely business point of view, but I, I handled that so badly and I, I know I could have done it better. That's the thing. I know if I would have approached it differently, if I would have been wiser and more experienced, I would have reacted to it differently and it probably would have changed a lot of things for the better. Um, that's the one thing, I guess. Uh, there's a, a lot of people who contend that you should be in the hall of fame. Gilbert wants to know when you go in the hall of fame, who would you have induct you? I, you know, I don't know. I don't like talking about this stuff. I really don't. And it's a fair question. And I understand why people are asking it. Um, but it, it just makes me so fucking uncomfortable that I hope everybody forgives me for not wanting to really indulge it. Uh, Steve wants to know what was the nastiest or most painful thing that Eric had thrown at him during his career. Now I'm sure what he's talking about is during the run of the NWO, you guys started to get showered with trash that fans were throwing at the ring. Anything in particular stand out as being particularly painful? Uh, it wasn't painful, but about a half a cup of tobacco spit was one of the most disgusting things I've ever had to live through. Um, guy hit me right in the side of the head, been chewing tobacco all night and spitting it in his cup at ringside. And I don't, I don't remember where we were, but we got down out of the ring and people were reacting and screaming and throwing shit. And I, (laughs) I got hit with this cup and I didn't know what it was right away. And I had pretty long hair at the time and trying to get, get out of the ring. And I, I get hit and I could feel, you know, all side of my head was wet. So I just thought it was like Coke or Pepsi or something. And I took my right hand. I kind of wiped it, you know, wiped the side of my head and the top of my, my forehead, you know, to get it out of my face. 
And as soon as I did, I could smell it on my hand, and I just about yapped right in my own. I, I, I literally, I got so sick to my stomach. It was, I, I barely made it to the back without throwing up. Uh, Alex wants to know if you could go back and change one thing about your TNA run, what would it be? Um, not doing it. You wouldn't have done it at all. Let me, let me, no, let me take that back. You know, I, 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 you know, when I answer before I think sometimes I, I regret it. Let me take that back. My son and I got to work together in the ring in TNA and my son got to work in the ring with Ric Flair, with Sting, with Hulk Hogan, with Kurt Angle, with AJ Styles, with Bobby Roode, um, with Bully Ray, uh, a lot of guys, Devon. That was some. Uh, that was such a phenomenal experience for my son that I would do it all over again just to just for that opportunity as a father. Except for that, there was nothing socially redeeming or professionally redeeming about it for me. I did it, you know, I did it primarily as a favor to Hulk. Uh, TNA wanted Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan didn't want to go to TNA unless there was somebody there to watch his back, creatively speaking, to make sure that the content, the storylines, whatever he was going to be doing uh, was not fucking ridiculous in, you know, typical Vince Russo nonsense. And Russo was there booking at the time. So he, he wasn't going to go unless I went. And believe me, TNA did not want me. You know, first of all, they didn't want to pay for me, but they certainly didn't want to have me there. It wasn't their choice. I was like the, I was a Jimmy Hart tax, <laughs> the Hulk Hogan tax. If you wanted Hulk, you had to take me. And you know, I, at the time, Hulk, Hulk was in serious, serious shape financially. Excuse me, physically. He didn't really need the money financially, but it was a, it was a good deal for him. It was seven figures for Hulk, and he only had to go over to Orlando, you know, every other week. So it was a really good gig for him. But he was he had was really going through his back surgeries were you know, one right after another, right after another, right after another, and nothing was working. He had a hard time walking six feet, uh, more or less, you know, doing anything else. So I actually negotiated his contract for him uh, with my attorney at the time. Uh, and in in the process of negotiating the agreement, I ended up negotiating my own. And it, it, like I said, you know, I got to work with some fun people, got to hang out with Rick quite a bit and had a great time and got to watch my son get an opportunity to work with some of the biggest names in the history of the business that I'm grateful for. The rest of it, I could just as easily forget about. Why don't you think Garrett pursued wrestling more? Um, he wanted to, he really did. You know, I tried to talk him out of it. I, you know, I didn't want him to get into the ring at TNA. Um, I, I, I tried to talk him out. He, you know, and, and long before he got into TNA, he started training, um, at Knox pro, the Knox pro gym in, uh, Los Angeles. He was out there for several months working with Rikishi in his school and Gangrel, who was teaching out there with Rikishi as well. So long before I even got to TNA, uh, Garrett was training 
to get into the business. So by the time I got to TNA, um, you know, it made it a little bit easier for him, obviously, or a lot easier for him, to be honest. Um, but I, you know, I, before he started training with Rikishi, I tried to talk him out of it because it's, there's just not as much, especially then. Now it's more, it's different now. If he would have been, you know, 22, 23, 24 years old in today's environment, I wouldn't have discouraged him as much. But this was before the independent scene got hot, right? 2009, 2010, when he started training. You know, the independent scene was not that hot back then. You didn't have the streaming opportunities and platforms that you have today. Um, and I knew because of his last name, it was unlikely he was going to get a fair shot at WWF. Um you know, second generation wrestlers don't always fare well there. And and particularly if your last name is Bischoff. So, you know, I tried to talk him out of it, but he it was his dream. It was his goal. And after I tried for a period of time to talk him out of it and realized I couldn't, then the only other thing I could do was support it. So when I got to TNA, it, it made sense for him to get into the business. But once I left TNA, you know, we're kind of we're kind of back to where we started from. The independent scene wasn't that hot back then. Um, there wasn't as much going on, and the odds of him getting into the WWF were WWF were slim to none. Well, that's uh, unfortunate because I think there's a lot of people who um, I don't know. We get tweets about him all the time, so maybe one day. Stink Eye wants to know if you could have bought the AWA in 1990, who would have been the face of the company? Assuming Hogan, Savage, and Flair are all unavailable. Kurt Hennig. Wow. There you go. That's a great name. He was at the height of his Mr. Perfect run right then too. And he was originally from the AWA and he had such a strong, uh, following in Minnesota well, throughout the Midwest actually. Um, but yeah, Kurt Hennig would have been the guy. Derek wants to know what did you like best about working for WWE? Oh, too hard to answer in one, one answer. Um, I really enjoyed the people. Isn't that ironic? You'd think, you know, after everything that happened, that would probably be the thing you wouldn't expect me to say, but I really, you know, I have, when people, you know, people ask me, you know, who, who do you still stay in touch with? You know, who are you still friends with in the wrestling business? All of them are associated with, or are, are, are either were working or are working with WWF or WWE. You know, Jerry Briscoe, I consider to be a good friend. Pat Patterson is a good friend. Obviously, Bruce Pritchard is one of my best friends. Um, J J John Layfield is a good. These are the people that I stay in touch with. You know, um, for the most part, other than you know DDP, maybe once or twice a year. Uh, actually, that's probably it. Um, I hardly talked to anybody else that I worked with in WCW. Isn't that bizarre? So I, I'd say the people, number one, I think the opportunity to work with so many names that I hadn't had a chance to work with in WC, obviously in WCW because they were WWF, whether it be, you know, um, John Cena, clearly Steve Austin, um, Kane, uh, you name it, you know, there, I got to work with the little Randy Orton. I got to work with a lot of people that, 
you know, it was felt like it was a brand new slate for me, you know, and that was fun because there were great characters. The production value was so good. It made, you know, doing things a lot more fun because you knew they were going to come off better on TV as a result. So there was a lot of things, but I think working with such great talent, number one, and the people, you know, and a lot of it was just backstage people too. You know, I'm naming names that people may know, but you know, I made friends with a lot of people on the production side of the equation that I still love seeing when I go back there today. Uh, the sweaty stallion wants to know if the NWO was never created, do you think you would have still had the same success in WCW? No. Yeah. I don't think there's, there's any debate there. There's just, there's no way even using, you know, try, and I thought, well, let me, let's, let me use my imagination and, and see if I could convince myself, even for the purpose of the show that it could happen. And it just wouldn't have. Let's get in the weeds here for a minute. Jason Taylor writes in reading the WCW Nitro book, I learned two names I'd never heard of Stu Snyder and Lenita Erickson. Tell us about Lenita. And do you think she hurt the fusion purchase of WCW? And also, do you believe that Stu Snyder colluded with Brad Siegel to broker the WCW sale to the WWF by having Jamie Kilner cancel WCW programming? I don't know, brother. You know, you and I touched on this a couple weeks ago in Orlando for just a brief moment. Now, Lenita Erickson's name didn't come up. And I'm going to be honest with you here and tell you the truth. I never even heard of Lenita Erickson until I read Guy Evans' book. I didn't even know that. There was a lot of stuff, by the way, I learned reading that book that I had no idea about. Right. Right. You know, before while I was there and even after I left, especially after I left. Now, Lenita Erickson's name came up and it was rather prominent. Um, pr really, she came about after I had left and while we were in the process of trying to buy WCW. So I did a little research on Ms. Erickson and I think she lives if, if I got my Google tactics down correctly or strategy down correctly. I think she lives in Michigan and I think she used to have, well, I have it on good opinion or not. I have it as a good, from a good source, I should say that she was, um, very active with a member of kiss. Let's leave it at that. Roll Tide. Huh? Roll Tide. Yeah. And how she came into contact with Brad Siegel, I don't know. But there was a lot of very interesting dynamics going on there. Let's just put it that way. And I have it on an authority from another guy who was mentioned as a part of that same story. Now, I'm not going to mention his name because I'm actually ironically in business with him to this day. And I never even heard of him before. Right. And, you know, he and I have now been working together for about a year on a really, really, really big project. And I absolutely love the guy. He's one of my favorite people to do business with. He's so much fun. He's so smart. He's so successful. But as I'm reading Guy Evans' book, his name pops up. And I'm going, what the hell? As a, as a you know, a part of this conspiracy to make a, a separate acquisition or compete with the acquisition that, that we were uh, attempting to do with WCW. So I'm reading and all these names are popping up. But yeah, I did a little bit of research on Lanita and then I asked the gentleman in question who I'm now friends with and in business with, who was also a part of that story. 
I asked him, and he got kind of a shit-eating grin on his face and confirmed everything that I suspected. So um, that's all I'm going to say about Lenita Erickson because I don't like to – I don't like to get people in trouble too since, much. Since we were on the phone uh, or recording this show, I threw her name in my Google machine and ran across a Facebook post from someone's wife where she's being called out. It's uh everything's on the internet. If you just look hard enough, Holy cow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and my friend was providing cover for that relationship. So he had a, he had a front row seat, so to speak. Very interesting. Now go to the second part of that. Stu Snyder, Brad Siegel. You know, when I first heard about, you know, Bob Ryder, and I, you know, I didn't hear about it until I read it in the book, obviously. So when I read, you know, Bob Ryder, you know, thinking that there was some nefarious scam going on that prevented the acquisition, I thought, well, that's, yeah, I don't think that's kind of a stretch of the imagination. But then as I continued to read on, and find out that Brad Siegel and Stu Snyder were like college roommates. And I knew Stu Snyder. Stu Snyder used to work for Turner when I was there, when I was when I first got hired in WCW. And for the first two or three years, yeah. even after I was made executive producer, Stu Snyder was a, you know, I think he oversaw Turner Home Video. That's that, I'm pretty sure that was it. Uh, and he may have oversaw other um, divisions, but I know Turner Home Video was one of them. So I knew who to, I knew who, the, who he was. I had met him once or twice before, but I didn't realize that you know the timing was really suspect because Stu left uh, Turner Broadcasting, and I think '98 or '99, and was in WWF, and then this whole deal was going down in 2001 or whatever it was, 2000. I can't remember the date now, and all of a sudden, bam, the deal hits the skids or a brick wall would be a better, better description. And then in Guy Evans' book, I found out that, you know, Brad may have been a part of that. It, it, it's alleged, I should say. Uh, it's it's very interesting. I have to kind of rethink it, because I always thought, as I told you a couple of weeks ago in Orlando, I've always considered Brad a pretty stand-up dude. I mean, he was very supportive of me. He, he actually tried to counsel me through some tough decisions when it came to Thunder and tried to coach me into ways of, you know, um, trying to talk Ted out of doing it or refusing to do it, which was never going to happen. But he actually tried his best. And, and be, as a result of that, I've always had a very high opinion of Brad. But, you know, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You know what I mean? Maybe there was something to it. Here's a fun question. Uh, I don't know how many times we got a variation of this, but your hair is really popular on social media. Lots of people want to know because, because my hair is fucking perfect. That's why preschool Timo wants to know, why did you dye your hair? Um, it all started back in 1988. <laughs> no, I started getting gray really early. Like when I was 25, 23, 24, 25. And it's like the first time I noticed a gray hair when I was in my earlier mid twenties, I looked in the mirror and went, wow, I got a dead hair. I wonder how that hair died. Cause it never occurred to me that it would be turning gray. Right. So it must've been just a hair died. That's the way I thought. So I popped that thing out, you know, a couple of weeks later, I get out of the shower, I'm drying my hair, starting to get cleaned up, shave. And I look up and go, wow, there's three more dead hairs up there. 
motherfuckers are dying off fast. <laughs> Pull them out, you know, move on. Cut to about a year and a half later, and I'm about 50% gray in my mid-20s. So, um, and right, uh, that was before I actually went to Vern. Um, I kind of tolerated it a little bit, but by the time I got to AWA and I knew I was going to be on camera, I was gray enough it started to bother me because I was still so young. I was in my early 30s, and I was 50 or 60% gray. So I started dyeing it then. And once you start dyeing it, you're on camera, you're pretty much stuck with doing it, right? I did it all through the AWA. Of course, I got to WCW right off of doing ESPN for AWA, and I had dark hair. So I had to have dark hair in WCW. And before you know it, you know, you're in your 40s, and you've been dyeing your hair for 15 years. Um so I I hated doing it because I had to do it about once every 10 days because uh, my hair grew so fast. It was so heavy and thick that if I didn't do it, you know, my hair would part down the middle of my head once it got heavy and long. And I looked like Pepe Le Pew. So I had about a one inch wide silver <laughs> stripe going right down the middle of my head. So I had to dye it every day or, every, you know, every week, week and a half. And it was a pain in the ass. So I couldn't wait to get my head shaved. That's amazing. Uh, here's a fun one. This is from Thomas. How many years did it take to rebuild your friendship with Ric Flair? Uh, it, it was a process. It, it did, you know, it didn't happen like over a weekend. Um, and it, you know, it, while, while I was in WCW and we kind of put our immediate issue to bed and, worked an angle together as a result of that or using that issue and you know, all the heat that we created that was real. Um, I thought at that point we had kind of put it all behind us. And then of course I left WCW thinking that, you know, Ric Flair and I were still cool. I hadn't seen him, you know, we didn't cross paths again until I got to the WWE. And even when I got to the WWE, you know, for the first few months, um, several months, Maybe six. I can't remember when he and I actually got into a, a backstage altercation, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, up until that moment, I thought we had put it behind us. So even when I was in WWE, you know, Rick and Arn and I had gone out and had beers after the show. And Rick and I had done it several times when we got done at, at, at Monday Night Raw. Uh, we'd meet at the hotel bar or jump in a cab and go to a different you know bar and have a couple beers together. Um, and then I found out... You know, at some point when I was in WWE, that there was still a lot of resentment that Rick had. Rick's a very emotional guy, and it had been building up in him. And I think it just boiled over one day, and I found out I still had heat with him because uh, I'm sitting in a chair talking on the phone to my wife and my real estate agent, and Rick, <laughs> Rick comes in and rifles a couple of shots into the side of my head. And you know, after that happened, and I realized, well, we. We aren't friends like I thought we were. Uh, another couple months went by, and I remember being over in the UK, I believe. Yeah, we were in the UK. And we were in the hotel bar after the show. Everybody was having a good time. And I happened to walk into the bar, and you know, I didn't really look around me before I walked in. I just kind of walked in and walked up to the bar, and you know, Rick's about four or five feet away from me. And he turned around and looked at me, and he just kind of smiled. He came over and, you know. We just started chatting like nothing ever happened. And we've been good friends ever since. Wow. So you never really talked about it. It just 
fixed itself. No, we, we never have talked about it. Isn't that funny? You know, it's like we both know what happened. But – and I'll tell you where – the first time I really spent a lot of time around Rick is when I put together a tour over in Australia. Uh, Might have been 2009. No, 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 no. When was that? Yeah, whenever it was. It would have been about 2009 was the first time I'd really spent a lot of time around Rick after that. And, you know, we, we got along great over there. We had a great time. And we talked about it a little bit on that trip, but it was very, I don't think we spent more than two minutes talking about it. And it was more like, yeah, whatever, that kind of crazy shit happens. And, you know, didn't really get into the why of it all. I never did understand what, what he was angry about. Like I said, I was confused because I thought we had gotten past all that stuff, you know, years, years ago at that point. We had spent so much time hanging out together in WWE that I didn't have any idea that he was still harboring some kind of resentment towards me or anger over, you know, what went on back in 98. But <clears throat> evidently did. And... You know, now I just I, I, you know, I look back at that and I just I laugh about it. Really, it's silly. Well, here's something silly. Jiren wants to know how was the kiss with Linda? Fucking awesome. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. She's hotter than she looks. You know, when you get close to her, there's a certain kind of vibe about Linda. You know, you wouldn't get it until you get in nice and close. She's a sexy beast. Uh, Jonathan wants to know, does Eric think there's too much Hollywood production in today's current product? That's a great question. And, and I think there needs to be a balance. Look, WWE has always been known for incredible production. And I don't mean to sound like I'm criticizing. If if there was anything, though, that I would consider possibly changing about the WWE product, if it were mine uh, or I had any influence over it, it would be to not make it look quite so perfect. You know, the the magic to me, at least, about live television is the the conscious or subconscious message to the audience that anything can happen. You know, when you when you watch a show that's taped, you know that they can edit whatever bloopers or whatever mistakes or whatever unexpected things happen can all be managed through the editing process and post-production. But a live show, you know, if a chicken runs out in the middle of, you know, uh, of the football field in, in the Super Bowl, the world is going to see it and probably be talking about it for days or weeks. That's the magic of live television. And in the, in the case of WWE – they do such an amazing job of producing nearly flawless, if not flawless, live television, then it might as well be post-produced. It doesn't feel as live as it possibly could. If every once in a while something happened that wasn't supposed to happen, and it can be something little. It doesn't have to be big. You don't have to throw a chicken in the middle of the ring, so to speak. But 
there's got to be a feeling that you're seeing something that's actually happening in the moment other than saying it's live. So I, I would, I, I would like a little bit more grit, I guess. Um, I'd like it to have a little bit more of a real personality and less of a flawless personality. That's the best way to say it. Justin wants to know if Eric started a promotion today and he could pick any, he could pick any three man booking committee living or dead, who would it be? Wow. Fun question. Fun question. Let's spend a little time with that. It'd have to be dusty, but that'd be my first pick. Um, look, dusty could be really off the wall. I mean, he had some big ideas. Some of his ideas were really crazy. So many of them were really good though. Um, I would have to, number one would be dusty. Number two, and this is going to shock some people, but not the people that really know him, Al Snow. Wow. Al Snow, I think of the people that, that I know today that I've worked with, I would say Al Snow understands psychology about as much is my third pick, which would be Scott Hall. Wow. Some unconventional picks here. Yeah. If, if, if you got Scott Hall, if Scott Hall was properly motivated and had his issues under control, I don't think you could find anybody who has a better grasp of character psychology and story psychology and ring ring psychology as well executing the above in the ring scott is scott is in a class all of his own he was he's just never been able to get out of his own way with his personal issues but if you get him honest to god i i mean this with all my heart because i've seen it i've experienced it firsthand in those moments of clarity and when he's properly motivated and usually he was always properly motivated when he was clear headed. Um, he could really, really amaze you with his ability to not only come up with characters or explain a story or enhance a story that was already being laid out, uh, because it was just basic, you know, grasp on psychology. So I, I think it would be dusty Scott Hall and Al snow. That'd be a great team. Uh, he didn't ask me, but my pick would be Dusty Rhodes, Pat Patterson, and Paul Heyman. God, wouldn't that be wouldn't that be a great Monday Night War team? Yeah, no doubt. You could have the, you could have those guys on one side, and I'd have my guys on the other side. Good good choice on Paul Heyman. Um, and who was your who was your other guy other than Dusty? Pat Patterson. Oh God, of course, of course. Now, I don't know if Pat would have been as good of a booker as he would have been taking those storylines. Yeah, but that's part of the booking committee. So, yeah. Yeah, no, you'd have probably kicked my ass with Pat. Um, Jimmy wants to know, did you ever party with Larry Nelson back in the AWA? We haven't talked about Larry here before. No, I I never did. Uh, I got to AWA in, in 87. 
Uh, I would see Larry, you know, when we did television tapings in Rochester, Minnesota, the ESPN tapings. Um, but we never really hung out together. And I was, you know, early on when I got to AWA, I was, you know, I just kept my nose down, did my work. Uh, I didn't try to associate with anybody. I mean, I, I hung out with Vernon Gregg eventually. You know, we became friends because we all liked to hunt together. Uh, but while I was at work or after work, after TV tapings, things like that, uh, I didn't really hang out with anybody or socialize with anybody and certainly not Larry. Sean wants to know, what do you think of the bullet club? Uh, I, 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 you know, I haven't heard or seen much of them lately. Uh, six or eight months ago, they seemed to be the hottest thing in the independent scene. I think it was cast pretty well originally clearly with guys like Cody Rhodes and the Bucks associated. Um, there seemed to be a, just a little bit of a, a wink and a nod to the NWO, which kind of made me smile, I guess. Uh, but other than that, I really didn't have, and don't have much of an opinion of them. Uh, lots of questions about or similar to this one from Ryan. Why did Eric never start his own promotion? <laughs> Because Eric learned well enough working <laughs> for people that had their own that it, it just wasn't a smart idea. You know, 20 years ago, if the right circumstances were to come around and, and, and we had the resources, I might consider that. But, you know, it didn't take me long to realize that television was getting harder and harder to come by and was more and more expensive to produce. And up until recently, if, if you didn't have a good, solid television foundation, um, there was no way you could launch a promotion. And I knew too much about the television business to think that I could actually be successful at convincing a reasonably good-sized network to carry wrestling. I knew better. Now, you know, I look at the opportunities that exist in streaming and and the, the various platforms that are out there and, and – how accessible it is, you know, I'm having second thoughts about that, but I think at this stage of my life, I might be a little, um, I don't want to say too old to do it because I'm certainly not too old to do it, but I just think that part of my life has kind of passed me by. There's other things I'm doing right now that I'm more interested in doing. It's probably a better way to say it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, Richard wants to know, would you come back to the WWE if it was the right situation? Of course I would. Of course I would. Um, you know, it's hard for me to imagine what that might be, frankly. I think my on-camera days are behind me. You know, I'm, I'm pretty well outside of the demo. I could see coming back for a one-off or or a limited kind of a on-camera role, limited period of time. I think the audience would probably dig it for a week or two or three or maybe a little longer. But I think after, you know, a period of time, less is more. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Uh, again, just because I'm so far outside the demo, um, backstage, you know, it would be even harder for me to figure out what that might be, but you never know. I mean, there's a lot of things going on at WWE. Is there something I could do with the network? I would, if I could, if that yeah. opportunity was there, I would, huh? I, I loved my time there, bro. I, mean, I, I can't, you know, I can't say it enough. There was no, there was no moment during my, whatever year run it was four or five years there was no moment while I was there that I wasn't happy to be there. And that was not the case in WCW. 
No, that's not the case in WC. There were plenty of moments when I wished I wouldn't have been there. <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't think, I think you're being too hard on yourself about being outside of the demo because realistically, I mean, at your age, you could have innovated crown jewel this past weekend. Can't make that one brother. Uh, that's funny. Uh, Stevie wants to know, and this is a fun question, Eric, why are you such a dingleberry? The fuck kind of question is that? What's a dingleberry? <laughs> I encourage everybody to Google it. What's a dingleberry? <laughs> Ryan wants to know, how does it feel to be WCW hardcore champion? You know, I think about that every morning when I get up, I look in the mirror as I'm about to shave and I'm wiping the sleep from my eyes and trying to shake the cobwebs out of my head. And I look in the mirror, squint a little bit. I say to myself, dude, you are the WCW hardcore champion of the world and you beat Terry Funk to do it. Damn, you're good. Every morning, I say that to myself. You know, I think that sort of gets overlooked. You know, the the fun joke amongst old timers sometimes is to say, "Who'd he ever beat?" Well, how about you beat Ric Flair and Terry Funk? I'm a legend, brother. Just I'm ask a legend. Me. I know. Hey, so uh, <laughs> on the heels of that, it's a great time to ask this. Uh, Jrn Anderson, eighteen, wants to know what is your greatest achievement in wrestling. It's got to be the NWO, right? Yeah. My greatest achievement in wrestling was changing the way wrestling was perceived in the mid nineties. You know, prior to the Monday night wars, wrestling was kind of, it was almost like porn, you know, everybody enjoyed it, but nobody admitted it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, wrestling got really cool again. In, in the mid-90s, 96, 97, 98. And it, it, it went from being something that everybody watched but nobody admitted to being something that everybody was talking about. And a perfect example, I'll tell you, Conrad, this, and th- these kind of moments I still remember so vividly because it, it said more to me than almost anything else. I remember 96, 97, whatever it was, I was flying to L.A., and I, I was flying in first class. Um, I had enough miles that I was, I'd either get booked in first class by Turner. I think it was in my contract or I'd get upgraded, whatever it was. So I'm sitting in first class and usually, you know, at that time you're sitting in first class and, you know, there are usually people with money, businessmen, lawyers, doctors, whatever, attorneys. Well, that's a lawyer. Um, but usually people that can afford to fly first class. So I'm, I had a little carry-on bag, and it had my Turner Broadcasting uh, name tag on it. And I remember sitting down in first class one day, and you know how people make small talk when you first sit down on a plane. Hey, how are you? Where are you going? Coming or going? You know, business, pleasure, that kind of just small talk, chit-chat. So I sit down, and I'm making this small small talk, chit-chat with this guy, and he looks out of my bag, and he said, oh, you work at Turner Broadcasting. And I went, oh, fuck. Here we go. He's going to ask me what I do. I'm going to tell him what I'm going to do. And then he's going to, you know, ask me a million questions. So I kind of put, it was early in the morning. So I kind of put my hand over my mouth and I intentionally mumbled. And I said, you know, I run WCW, hoping that he wouldn't really hear it or acknowledge it. And he goes, WCW, that's that, that's that wrestling thing, isn't it? 
And, you know, you could just tell by that look on his face and the disdain in his voice that he had a very low opinion of it. And I'm thinking, oh, God, next time I'm just going to say I'm retired. So anyway, the flight goes on. We take off. And here we go with the million questions. So you're in the wrestling business. Whatever happened to Dick the Bruiser? I'm going, okay, now this guy's from the 60s. So he must have watched back in the 60s. He's from the Midwest because he knows who Dick the Bruiser is. Okay, he's a Midwestern guy. He's about 45 years old. He remembers Dick the Bruiser. He was about eight or nine then. So I said, oh, okay, well, Dick the Bruiser, I think uh, he actually, you know, he died a couple of years ago in kind of a freak accident. Okay. So whatever happened to the next guy, whatever the next guy was. And this was a 70s guy now, right? So just we touched on the 60s. Now we're into the 70s. And then it's like, well, whatever happened to this guy? Now we're into the 80s. You want to know about Jerry Blackwell? Well, clearly he's from the Midwest. He remembers Jerry Blackwell, Blackwell from the AWA. So now we're into the 80s. Then we get into the 90s. And I'm thinking, holy shit, this flight is not going to end soon enough. And then he says, what about last week? What the hell is going on with Randy Savage? So here's this guy. And by the way, he started out the conversation by, oh, that wrestling stuff. Oh, I can't be- believe people watch that stuff. I used to watch that when I was a kid. Oh, that stuff is crazy. I can't believe it. anybody even watches it. And then we start walking through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s until we get to whatever happened. Why did that happen last week with Randy Savage? So clearly, he was a closet wrestling fan. I didn't want to just come out and admit it. And he had to walk me through the history of professional wrestling to finally admit that he was watching last Monday night on Nitro. But that kind of thing happened a lot. I would go to Hollywood. You know, I was on the Jeff Foxworthy show with Randy Savage. I can't remember what it was, 97, 96, 97, somewhere in there. And you, could, you couldn't walk around the set of the Jeff Foxworthy show without people wanting to talk about wrestling. It was phenomenal. I did the Arliss show for HBO. Same thing happened there. You know, people, it just became so popular to be a wrestling fan in the mid and late 90s that I think that was my biggest biggest accomplishment. You know, sort of the NWO was a big part of that and the reason for it. But just changing the perception of the product and making it hip again and interesting again to an audience that otherwise was embarrassed to even admit that they watched it, that, that was a pretty cool accomplishment. Eric, we get lots of questions about sex, drugs, and rock and roll here on the show. Jack is one of the many people we had asked a question that basically wants to know about some of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll in WCW. There is certainly rumor and innuendo that with all the nitro girls running around and all the, uh, I believe the word one of the boys uses is talent with all the talent running around. It was probably a fair amount of shenanigans. You got a good shenanigan story you can share if you need to maybe change the names to protect their identities. Oh, well, if I, if I change the names, it'll be boring. You know what I mean? But let's just say that the nitro girls added a whole new dimension of challenge for me. Um, right off the bat, uh, that, that became a real issue. Uh, there was a certain executive at TNT who convinced me to hire his niece, who is a very fine young lady, very attractive, very, very great personality, very talented. 
And I thought, well, you know what? This high place executive wants me to hire his niece. Um, I'm going to do the politically smart thing and go along to get along. So I brought this young lady in and uh, put her on the production crew uh, as an intern, I believe. And about 60 days later, it became very apparent to everybody that she had engaged, uh, not got engaged, but had been engaging with a very uh, high-profile piece of talent on the roster, which became a serious fucking nightmare for me, a serious nightmare for me. And it didn't play out well in the long run either. But, uh, yeah, there was... There was some shenanigans for sure. Hypothetically, was that said talent also married at the time? Uh, you know, I, maybe, maybe not. They may have been separated. It was kind of a, it was an on again, off again, uh, relationship for them at that time. Tony wants to know any involvement with the rumored promotion involving Chris Jericho, Jim Ross, and the unknown billionaire investor. Nobody's called me. <laughs> I wish him the best, but no, I, I've read about it. That's about as close to, to, to that. That's as close to it as I've gotten. I read about it. It's like everybody else. Not takes wants to know. Did you seriously never watch ECW? Half of their division was your cruiserweight division. No, half of it wasn't the cruiserweight division, but, um, you know, I'd be happy to take a lie detector test at any one of our live events. If somebody could arrangement and if somebody wanted to ask me on the, in that lie detector test, if I ever watched ECW, the answer would be no. And I'd pass that lie detector test every single time. So there's your challenge. Can we have you watch some old ECW together with me here on the show one day? No, yeah, sure. Of course. And I've, I've seen it. Don't get me wrong. I've watched tapes of it. I've seen clips of things. I was aware of it, but I never watched it. I, I never watched it. Uh, and first of all, I don't think it was available. People need to realize, you know, I know, you know, we talk about this stuff and I make these bombastic statements and sometimes I probably overstate things or exaggerate things. I know I do. It's just my personality. But when I say I never watched it, it's not because I you know, had no respect for it. It's not because I refused to watch it. None of that horse shit. It's because it didn't exist where I lived. You know, if you go back to 95, 96, 97, 98, you couldn't find ECW unless you were so fucking committed to it or were willing to move to New Jersey in order to watch it at 3 o'clock in the fucking morning. It just wasn't really available that much. I mean, it was in a small handful of syndicated stations and small cable outlets at two and three and four o'clock in the morning mixed in with the infomercials, you know, in the Chinese Ginsu knives or whatever the hell they were. So it's, it's not like I didn't watch it because I had a chip on my shoulder. I didn't watch it because it wasn't available. Uh, Anderson has uh, a pretty common question here that we get all the time. Why didn't you put up the two to $4 million for the WCW tape library? Just the tapes, trademarks and IP. You would have made some major scratch along the way. For the same reason that I just didn't happen to buy the lottery ticket for the mega millions last week and, and win that, you know, almost billion dollar lottery. It's easy to, it's easy for people to go, well, why didn't you just do that? 
you know, back before anybody knew anything about over-the-top networks or streaming or the ability to monetize that footage. And quite honestly, I, I, I wouldn't have – Back at that time, I might have been able to scrape together a hundred grand out of my own resources. Maybe, you know, I, I've never had that kind of money. So, you know, aside from the fact that I couldn't have afforded it personally, had I had to go out and raise that kind of money, the first thing someone asked me was, "Okay, well, how am I going to get a return on this investment?" Well, we're going to take all this footage and we're going to convert it to DVDs. Well, that's only going to cost you about 300 grand right out of the chute. And then you're going to hope that there's a market for that, you know, legacy DVD footage, which there really isn't or wasn't. You would have been able to sell it to some people. But for anybody to think that you could have got a return on that $4 million or $3 million, whatever the number was, let's call it $3 million. For anybody to think that you could have bought that library and find a way to monetize it, knowing that streaming wasn't going to come along for, for 20 years, it, it was not a good business decision. The only reason it was a good business decision, business decision for Vince was because he was already aggregating that content. Whether he had a vision for what was going to happen in the future or whether he just wanted to own every single minute of footage he could get his hands on just so that he had control of it all, knowing that eventually something was going to, going to, something would evolve that would allow him to monetize it. I don't know. But uh, someone like me or fusion media, there was just no business model that would have supported a decision like that at that time. Esteban wants to know what were some of the craziest stipulations in a contract you ever read before signing a talent? You remember any crazy requests we hear, you know, the old rock and roll music writers, no Brown M and M's. Were there anything, was there anything weird requested in all of your WCW contract negotiations? No, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> other than first class airfare, some, you know, some people wanted certain periods of time off. Uh, no, nothing really. Nobody wanted like, you know, purple M&Ms or anything like that. You know what I mean? It was pretty straightforward stuff. E future wants to know, was Jericho leaving the hardest pill to swallow as far as all the departures and your time in WCW? Uh, cause you've kind of talked about, you know, you weren't really necessarily sad to see the giant go. You thought it was the right thing for business for cactus and Austin to go chat me up. You know, we, we, t we talked about Vader, but Jericho you were still actively trying to sign him and just couldn't come to terms. Yeah. It, I mean, it was different in that respect, you know, as I didn't want Chris to go, I did want to keep Chris and I did work pretty hard to try to do that. So I, you know, I wasn't a bitter pill. That's why I was having a hard time deciding how I wanted to answer that. You know, I wasn't like angry about it. I wasn't sad about it. I was disappointed. That's a good way to say it. I really wanted to keep him there, but you know, 24 hours after it was over, it was over and we were moving on. And I didn't really think about it again after that. Uh, I didn't dwell on it. You know what I mean? I did try to keep them. I wanted to keep them. I was sorry that we couldn't keep them, but you know, that lasted maybe, you know, overnight. And then it was just time to move on. Dave wants to know what moment during your career did you truly think, man, it doesn't get any better than this. Oh, there was a moment. Can't remember the year. 
it was it, Hulk and I were in a limo and we were pulling up to Cobo Hall, Cobo Arena in Detroit. And we were both, you know, basking in the glow a little bit, really feeling good about what was going on. And, you know, it was just he and I, so there was nobody around, you know, to, we weren't trying to pump anybody up or, or anything like that. We were just, it was just he and I, and it was a very casual conversation. And I, I remember, I don't remember what I said, but, but Hulk looked at me and he said, Eric, just remember as good as all of this is right now, it can all go away just as fast. And it, 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 it kind of shocked me that he said that because we were both, you know, kind of like high-fiving each other in a way, you know, verbally, not, not literally. But we were just like really in this great mood. And then he shifted gears all of a sudden and, and said that to me. And it's kind of a reality check. You know, it was his way of saying don't get too cocky. You know, don't, don't think you're here forever because you're not. And I remember that to this day, and it's it was it was probably good advice at the time that I didn't really understand, and I probably I wish I would have been wiser and I would have paid more attention to it. Uh, Nick wants to know, and this is a fun question because I don't think anybody's ever really thought about it, but you may have. If you could have signed the Undertaker, what would you have done with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know, man. I, he, he wouldn't have been the undertaker. Right. And that's the biggest challenge right there. Cause you're spending so much money for a character that you can't have. So knowing that he wouldn't have been anything close to the, the to the undertaker as a character, you know, how could we have used him? I was never a big fan of really big guys. You know, we had Kevin, you know, we had Paul, and it's it's really hard creatively. We've touched on this before, you know, booking guys that are that big, because it's hard to, in a believable way, to get sympathy on them. It's hard for them, in a believable way, to sell unless you you know take a chainsaw to them or a bazooka. You know, it, it's it's hard for them to be a good heel, because it doesn't make any sense for a guy that big to be a chicken shit. It's not believable. So I just don't know. You know, I, I know I wouldn't have been excited about hiring him, not because he's not a super talented guy, but if you would have looked at our roster back then, you know, where would he have fit? You know, he had a relationship with, you know, he was in WCW before. So let's lose, we'll, let's have fun with this. We'll use our imagination. So if let's assume, you know, hypothetically, the whole NWO WCW storyline as I had it in my head would have played out the way I wanted it. NWO would have officially taken over Monday Nitro. Top to bottom would have been NWO show. WCW would have been over on Thunder had we had it played out the way I had hoped for it. You know, because WCW and Mark Callis had had pre previously had a relationship, I would have probably tried to play off that. I would have probably tried to bring Undertaker or Mark Callis in on the WCW side of the equation to be kind of a counter for Kevin Nash, uh, so to speak. So that might've worked, but other than something like that, you know, I don't know. It would have been tough. Now, last one here. And then we'll wrap it up this week. Jeremy Jones wants to know if you could boil your TNA run down to one problem without the last name of Carter, what was it? 
Broadhead. Wow. Old Dean Broadhead. Tap me there up. You go. And I'm sure we'll talk about it some other time, but what was the problem with Dean? And, and, and I mean, I, I think we can all guess that maybe he was undermining your authority and there was double talk and double speak. And we've all heard that that was sort of the case inside TNA, but what was your experience? And particularly what were the challenges with Broadhead? Well, he didn't undermine my authority because I had no authority. There was nothing to undermine. I, I never went into TNA with any authority. I never had any when I was there. I had a certain amount of influence because I was only I was the only one in a company with a half a brain as it related to the wrestling business. Nobody in that entire company had any clue about the wrestling business. And and that's not the worst thing in the world, by the way. Um, Ted Turner didn't know much about the wrestling business either, other than that it worked. Right. But if you don't know anything about the business that you want to be in, you should at least be smart enough to hire people who do know. And that was one of the that was the dynamic that I experienced at TNA is nobody and nobody in the company and the management side of the company. Nobody knew anything about the business, which, again, that in and of itself is not the, the real problem. But the lack of desire to bring in people that knew about the wrestling business was only compounded and exacerbated by the fact that if somebody happened to get through the door who did understand the wrestling business, they were even more of an outsider and shunned by that internal you know, group of people in Nashville named Carter and otherwise. So it was just such a bizarre dynamic. And I think with Dean, more than anything, um, he, he was duplicitous. You know what I mean? He, he, he was two-faced, as you could possibly be. You know, I'd go into his office, and he would always try to impress me for whatever reason, you know, of, of what a big supporter he was of mine. And, you know, he thought, you know, I had my finger on the pulse and – you know, all, all, all the other bullshit that he could possibly come up with. You know, he, did, he went out of his way to try to make me, you know, really feel like he was he was my guy. And I knew for a fact that I could walk out the door and he'd be, you know, burying me, you know, for the rest of the afternoon. And that was the case with just about everybody there. There was real, I don't know, it was really weird. It was a very, very strange dynamic. If you happen to, like I said, if you happen to sneak through the door, Bruce Pritchard did, you know. Um, Bruce knew the business. You know, he knew it better than anybody inside of TNA. If you took every single person in every single office in TNA and you could somehow add their collective brain power as it related to the wrestling business together and create one kind of giant TNA super brain, they wouldn't have – it wouldn't have added up to one fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what Bruce knew. But rather than embracing Bruce – they did everything they could to make his life miserable and, 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 you know, take the rug out from underneath them or destroy his credibility with the talent that he was supposed to manage. But I'm not defending Bruce here, but Bruce had a different position in TNA than I did. I didn't have control over anything. Nobody reported to me, you know, so it was just a different situation. But, you know, Dean Broadhead, you know, was a guy. Here, here's a here's a Dean Broadhead story for you. You know, in, in Tennessee, it's legal like it is in a lot of places to carry a gun, right? And I remember one time, you know, and Dean was always trying to impress you. 
You know, you can get into any, you can talk to Dean about the weather and about six minutes into the conversation, talking about how great the weather was and what you were going to do this weekend. Before that conversation ended, he would be telling you a story about the times when he was in a fighter pilot in Vietnam dropping napalm, you know, on villagers and what a badass he was, right? And it, it, it all, all conversations reverted to that with Dean. And it was just his just way of trying to impress you, you know, that at one time he was a badass, which I get. A lot of people are like that. But one time in particular, I was sitting in his office and as we're sitting there, you know, and again, it's another one of those types of conversations. He reaches in his desk drawer, pulls out a gun and sets it on a table and starts wiping it down with a cloth. Like, you know, no big deal. I'm just cleaning my gun in front of you, you know, just so, you know, you know, I have one. So what the fuck? This is the strangest shit I've ever seen. You know, puts his gun back in his briefcase and carries on the conversation like, you know, nothing ever happened. Just little shit like that, you know, to me, just it, it pegged my bizarro meter. Let's put it that way. Well, that's the big difference between TNA and WWE because doing that in WWE, you get your ass fired and ask Bruce. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. I well, forgot all about that, but that's funny. Well, we're looking forward to next week. We're going to have a lot of laughs. Uh, we're covering the first year in WWE. So give us a tease. What might we be talking about next week here on 83 weeks when we cover your first year in the WWE? My first year in WWE. Oh my God. I don't know, man. I'm going to have to go back and think about that. You know, there, there was... You know, we talked about my first night in WWE, so that, that you know, I don't want to talk about that again. That's redundant. Um, I know what it was. It was probably within the first month of me being in WWE. I'd always heard about the way they'll test you to see what you're really made out of, whether you're really a team player or you're really a pro or how far they can push you before you break. And there was one incident, I think it was within the first month, maybe the second month that I was there, that made me think, uh-huh, this is my test. How am I going to handle this? And we'll leave it right there. He is at E. Bischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. I'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.